Well, let me again extend a welcome to you in being part of Church Online today. It, it's great to have you with us and we're so very thankful that we can actually meet like this. The parable that we're looking at today is one that is given many names. It's called the shrewd manager, the unjust manager, the dishonest manager, or many similar things. And what we know clearly is that this is a parable that was told on a Sunday afternoon in the house of a Pharisee. And what we've had read, what we've just had read to us is part of an ongoing conversation which in our scriptures, particularly in Luke here, uh, begins at chapter 14 and it goes all the way through to chapter 17 verse 10. So all those parables, all those conversations occurred at this one time in this Pharisee's house on a Sunday afternoon. And Jesus has just finished speaking on the parable of the prodigal son. And after this, he will speak about the rich man and Lazarus. And all of these parables, these three, revolve around the problems or issues related to money. And, and keep in mind, this is all being said in one place, one parable after another. And Jesus is talking specifically here to his disciples in this parable. But it's a message that is also intended for the rich among them and the scribes and Pharisees that are sitting around them, it's intended for them as well. And this is more clearly evident when we read the 14th verse of Luke 16, where it's clear that the Pharisees have listened to what Jesus has said and they're greatly offended by the words that he has spoken. And so this is a parable about money and a proper place for it in our lives. Uh, the love of money and not money itself is the root of all kinds of evil. And money will either be your servant or it will be your master. And Jesus' words here expose the Pharisees' desire for money. There needs to be a word of warning as we approach this parable as well. And many other biblical accounts also. We need to treat Jesus all he has said and all he has done with the reverence he rightly deserves. And I know many of you will be wondering what the point is, why I'm actually saying this, uh, as you believe you do actually do that. But the issue here is that, and in other places of Scripture as well, we read accounts which may cause us to say that Jesus condoned or justified certain attitudes or actions which are counter to sound biblical teaching and actually counter what, to what Jesus himself says. I want you to think about Jesus for a moment. Jesus is the author of truth. He is honest above all. He is righteous above all. And to say that Jesus condones or accepts or justifies anything that is counter to this nature would have to be considered heresy. And people have said that Jesus is not only condoning but praising the fraudulent actions of this manager. But Jesus did not uphold this man or his actions or his dishonesty as an example for believers to follow. It was not the deceit that was praised and it wasn't Jesus who praised it. It was this astuteness, the shrewdness that this manager demonstrated in discerning accurately his situation and, taking, and taking decisive action to secure his future. And this is Jesus using an earthly illustration something that his listeners could relate to in order to understand a more divine meeting. Jesus took this man's foresight and prompt action, although wicked and self-serving in its outworking, and uses them to highlight the qualities that true disciples should have. So before we get into this, let's just pause and pray. 
Father, I want to thank you again so much that we can come to this place at this time. And Lord, for most of us, that's in our living rooms. I pray, Lord, there's some of us that are meeting in friends' houses. I pray there's some of us that have invited friends to our house and we're gathered together doing community even there, Lord. But Lord, now we want to hear your voice. We want to respond to you. So please reveal the truth of your word to us this evening, that today, I pray, Lord. Just encourage us, Lord, to open our hearts and our minds to you and to allow you to change us, allow you to challenge us. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So when it comes to this parable today, there's been many different ways of interpreting it, many different things that people have said, but there's two that are most prominent and most widely accepted. So the first is that this manager dishonestly reduced what was owed to his master and Jesus commends the manager's assessment of his situation, his crafty forward-thinking uh, use of the presently available resources. The second interpretation is based on a belief that um, these managers, all managers at the time, basically systematically increased the bills of their owners to include a hefty commission for themselves. So in this case, in this interpretation, the manager is seen to take action at no cost to his owner, um, but merely cut, it out, cut out the commission that was due to himself, the commission he'd actually built into the bills. So he was willing to take action which cost him personally and not his owner, not the rich ruler, um, with the hope of receiving a return of goodwill in the time to come from those whose bills he reduced. In this case, Jesus commends the manager for his foresight, which will provide for him later. Either of these options could be correct. Either of them are possible. And many prefer the second as what Jesus is then commending is not something that is built on an example of dishonesty. But either way, both interpretations actually reach the same conclusion. Both interpretations come to the same end. And first and foremost, we should talk about the manager's situation. And Jesus begins this parable by talking about a rich man who, was appointed, who has appointed a manager over all of his affairs. And up until this point, he's been addressing the scribes and Pharisees. But here we see that he's now addressing his disciples. Uh, look at how Luke 16, 1 starts. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you are no longer going to be my manager. And we need to look for accurate descriptions of people and situations involved. And as I've said, um, this is Jesus turning to his disciples. He's, he's now going, and he also said to his disciples. So he's turned to them. He's focusing upon them. And we know that this parable uh, is often said to be about the dishonest manager. But that's not the accusation that is contained in these first two verses. What's actually the manager is accused of is being wasteful. And any dishonesty on the manager's part is not even mentioned here. And in fact, the only dishonesty in this parable comes into play in verses 4 to 7, um, where that could be considered dishonesty, depending on which interpretation you take. So the term used to describe the manager's wastefulness is the same term translated as squandered in the parable about the prodigal son in Luke 15, 13. And this connection expresses the sheer negligence of the manager. We know that the prodigal son absolutely squandered his wealth. Everything was gone. Everything was bent. There was nothing left at all. And that gives an example or an illustration of just how bad this manager was, how poor he was at uh, managing his um, superior's affairs. And so the rich man comes and calls upon his manager to give an account. 
And this indicates that the rich man believes the charges that have been brought against his manager. And further to that, the fact that the manager offers no resistance and offers no defence to the charges that have been brought against him and what uh, the rich man says also indicates his guilt. Luke 16.3 says, And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. And here we have this manager who is considered incompetent, has proven himself to be incompetent, and he's unable to manage his master's affairs. But now, being faced with a personal crisis, he suddenly becomes a forward planner or thinker. Uh, he examines ways, resources that he can use and utilise in order to move forward in his own life. There are options for him. He could become a labourer, but there are a couple of issues with that. Uh, just think about how you would feel if... Um, you were a labourer who actually started working for others who you once actually took accounts and uh, fees from uh, for your uh, master. And, and he wouldn't want to be doing that. He wouldn't want to be working for people who he once actually received payments from. And it also says he wasn't particularly strong. So his other option is he could beg. But again, he doesn't want to do that considering the shame. And also it's not a very attractive or lucrative um, way of making an income so that's not a viable proposition for him also so in examining examining the options that he have he decides on a course of action and he has this plan this manager will soon lose the security of his position the protection of his rich master and uh, he takes action before word gets out about his dismissal and his desire is to have people receive him into their houses. And he's living in a society where certain customs are practiced. Basically, if this manager does a favor for the rich man's clients, they are obliged to reciprocate. And they are unlikely to employ him or, or, or actually have him in, his, in their homes for any length of time. But it's highly likely that they'll help him find work or they will help him in other ways. And so he has this cunning plan. He takes inventory with the debtors one at a time. And we've provided two examples in this passage. The first bill is 100 baths of oil, which is the equivalent of about three years' wage. The second is 1,000 bushels of wheat, which is about eight to nine years' wage. And there's no doubt in the minds of the debtors who was responsible for reducing their debts by such a significant amount. The manager can't be charged with theft because he hasn't stolen anything. But by making the debtors beneficiaries to such a great debt relief, he has certainly made some friends who will feel obligated to help him in the future. And the result of his dishonesty is quite surprising. Luke 16.8 says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And the rich man or master commends the manager not because of his dishonesty, but because of his shrewdness. He acted in light of what the future may have brought. And he's managed not only to make plans about his future, but he's managed to enact that same plan. So his future is now not as bleak as it once appeared. And now comes the time of Jesus' application of this parable. And Jesus is ready to drive his point home, the point of this parable. What we need to keep in mind is that he's talking to his disciples while sitting in the home of a Pharisee with many scribes and Pharisees listening into what Jesus is saying. And the point of this parable is 
there's many people of the world, think, think of the shrewd manager, who give more thought to their future and physical well-being from a worldly perspective than they think about what the righteous should be putting into their spiritual well-being. In a nutshell, he's saying the people of the world are more shrewd than the people of the light. They show greater powers of judgment, more astute uh, to situations and times than the righteous are. Luke 16:9 says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they so when it fails, they may receive you into the internal, eternal dwellings. And this is Jesus providing a specific example. He's saying to use the wealth of this world generously, not for yourself, but to make friends because of your generosity. The word translated wealth here comes from the Greek word mammon, which is riches, treasure, or material possessions. And Jesus says, don't hold on to it. All your resources should be put to generous and serving use. God honours those who are generous. And 16.10 says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest with much. It's a theme that's repeated throughout Scripture. If we are faithful with the little, we will be faithful with much. If we are proven to be trustworthy with whatever God blesses and entrusts us with, then we will be fruitful and trustworthy with more. Who would entrust to anyone anything of significant value if they cannot be trusted with something of little value? The resources we are blessed with, do we put them to selfish use or are we generous with them? Um, selflessly sharing and blessing others as a result of what we've been given. And Jesus is pushing for recognition that what is required in true discipleship are attitudes of integrity, generosity and grace. Jesus is addressing his disciples, but in the background listening are the Pharisees and the scribes, men who are the religious leaders who had clearly lost their way because they had this desire, this predisposition to money, wealth, position and status. And Luke 16, 13 says, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And as it says, no one can serve two masters. There will come a time, and perhaps there will come several times in our lives, where we will have to answer the question, who will I serve? He who is entrusted with little and his faith will, will be trusted with more. Think of the Pharisees and scribes. These are the men who were entrusted with the word of God, which pointed to the coming Messiah, but they got caught up in serving another God. And that God was money. That God was position. That God was status. That God was popularity. And so they missed out on being entrusted with the proclamation of the greatest message mankind will ever know. They had chosen to serve those things. Money, status, authority, position and class. But what they had was taken from them. There's no scribes or Pharisees anymore. Not like there was. And quite simply, it's evidence that you cannot serve God and money. My question to you today, are we focused on the day-to-day? -day? Do we do what we do in order to live? Are we looking at getting money into the bank 
getting that next new car, taking that next step at work? Are we focused on the here and now or do we have an eternal focus? Are we more concerned about the things of God? Are we shrewd for those things of God? John Wesley is quoted as saying, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And they're very interesting words when you work through what he actually meant. And he didn't actually say, make all you can. He actually said, earn all you can. But it's quoted as saying, make all you can. And it came from a sermon which was all about the use of money. And I believe the major focus in this parable is about money. I believe it also covers the gifts, talents and abilities that we have. But the major focus is on the use of money. And John Wesley said, earn all you can. And I don't think anyone needs to be told you should earn all you can. I think it just seems to be built in. We have this desire to want and have more. And Wesley wasn't saying that you should actually aggressively acquire more funds. But he wanted to emphasize that we should be earning all we can through participating in God's healing and creative work on the, in the world. It was a message against the destructive nature of earning money, hurting oneself or others for the sake of gaining more. He emphasized that we shouldn't be exploiting others in gaining and we shouldn't gain from the pain and suffering of others at any time or of oneself. And when we consider giving, we consider how that wealth is earned. And it's just like there's many gambling um, organizations, companies who will offer funds to churches, charities and communities and we have to reject it because of how that money was earned. We don't believe that, that that is a right thing to do, to take money that is earned through gambling, through hardship of others. And so Wesley says, earn all you can. He also says, save all you can. And what he's actually saying, he's not calling us to invest wisely and build large saving accounts and things like that. He, he considered that as throwing money into the sea. But what he's saying in Saving all you can is to simplify your lifestyle. Don't live having to have the latest gadgets. Don't live in extravagance. Don't have opulence and self-gratification as things that you pursue. Uh, anything that we have that is unnecessary is something that we don't need to have. And Wesley actually considered it as blood of the poor. And he would actually give up having such things in order to give more funds to the poor. And if we're willing to simplify our living, it will help others to live better. Stewardship is all about what we're willing to do. His final phrase, give all you can. And this gives meaning to the first two. You earn all you can, you save all you can, so you can give all you can. And we're to gain all we can and save all we can in order to do exactly that. We don't indulge in foolish desire. We don't gratify any desires of the flesh, the desire of the eye, the pride of life. We waste nothing, whether for ourselves or our kids. And then we give all we can. 
We give all we have to God for his use and for his purpose. Earning, saving, giving is all a means of giving ourselves to God. And giving for Wesley was rooted in the very nature and activity of God. God's nature was to love. And to love is to empty oneself of all we have for others. And that's what we're called to do. A life of grace, God's unmerited favour and love poured out upon all humanity, seen most in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are called to love our neighbours as ourselves. And so we are called to pour our generosity out upon all humanity as well. A generosity that we only have because of what Christ has first done for us. We cannot say we love if we fail to give. Wesley observed that wealth changes our priorities. It changes our relationships. And we have a habit when we gain wealth to become independent, self-reliant, to move away from God. And that's what happens in religion. We saw that with the scribes and the Pharisees. Giving is rooted in God's very being. The ability to give itself is a gift which comes from God. All life is grace, freely given to us every moment of every day. It's an unearned gift of God's favour who invites us to share in the divine life and mission that he has called us to. And that is in giving, the giving of ourselves, the giving of our gifts. We give it all to God and allow him to use us for his purposes. We are his stewards. We are his ambassadors upon this earth. God has graciously invited us into his life into his activity by calling us his children and making us his human family so that we can bless others as a result. Giving is indispensable to Christian discipleship. Giving is part of our living as holy Christians following Christ. It's interesting that when we see the class divides across the world at the moment, those classes were originally formed in order to take up offerings and funds and arms in order to bless those who didn't have, in order to bless the poor. They were communities of grace to bless others. They aren't anymore. Giving also includes more than the products of our labour. We should be disciplined in how we live. We should be disciplined in how we respond to the needs of the world in many different forms of giving. We give by refusing to take from others what is necessary for their abundant life. Giving includes sharing the fruits that we are abundantly blessed with. We're called to manage them well and share them with others, especially the poor. And giving involves friendship with the poor. It's incredible as you read through scripture and you see the amount of times that Jesus reaches out to the poor and ministers to the poor. And Wesley was this man who in, he just considered visitation to the poor as indispensable to Christian discipleship. 
And in his day and age, he encouraged Christians not to give to the poor, not to send money to the poor. And I know that sounds counter to everything else I've said about him, but what he wanted people to do was to actually take those funds and give them to the poor, spend time with them, fellowship with them, give them more than money, give them friendship, give them someone who will walk alongside them, someone who sit and eat a meal with them. He encouraged them to build community. He encouraged them to walk alongside those who didn't have what they had and to strengthen them as a result. Renewal will not come to this church, will not come to this nation unless we're willing to give, unless we're willing to welcome the poor. Giving moves us beyond charity it is so easy to sponsor a child. It is so easy to give to something. But giving moves beyond that charity to building communities, to bringing peace, to bringing connectedness, bringing justice and compassion to all of those around us. Justice is what God requires. There was no difference in delivering medical care and proclaiming the gospel. One social service, one is evangelism, but both are good news. That was what was behind Wesley's message. And I suppose my challenge to you today is, think about your position in life in Australia. Are you generous? with the gifts, talents, abilities and wealth that God has abundantly blessed us with? Are we willing to open our doors to those? Think about the situation we're in at the moment where we cannot physically meet. Are we making the most of this opportunity and inviting people into our house on Sunday to sit, have a meal with us and then share a service with us or have the service and then share a meal? just to have people in our house so they can hear the gospel message, so they can be interacted with, so we can make connection and community with them. This is a time when we can make a difference in our individual communities. Is all that we do with what we are blessed with, with eternity in mind? Or is all that we do with retirement in mind? Because that is far from the end. Let's pray. Father, everyone that hears my voice is abundantly blessed, comparatively speaking, here in Australia compared to the rest of the world. And Lord, I pray that you'll be triggering things in our minds about how we waste our money on ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to realize we should be serving you with our money. We should be serving you with who we are. We should be serving you with the gifts, talents and abilities that you've given us. All we have, all we are is yours, Lord. That's what you call us to. And I pray that to, today we'll be willing to make that step. That, Lord, we'll be willing to say, I've been wrong. I've been doing things in my own strength. I've been wanting to serve myself, Lord, but I don't want to do that anymore. I want to think with eternity in mind. I want to serve you as one who knows he's going to stand in your presence and have to give an account for all the wealth that you've blessed me with, just as this manager did to the rich ruler. And, Lord, my prayer is that each of us 
will be found to have been good stewards with what you've blessed us with. That we have reached others around us and in our communities to glorify your name, Lord, to draw others into the kingdom of God. And that, Lord, what is grown as a result of our generosity is that which lasts for eternity. Lives saved, brought into your kingdom and people encouraged to do the same. Father, transform us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.